Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Let's go. You ready? All right, here we're, here's where we're at in our story. We got this hangry mob of Israelites that are traveling through the Sinai Peninsula. And some of the people that live in the Sinai Peninsula do not really like this massive camping trip. Because to them, it kind of looks like the Israelites are moving in, which they are. So a group of these people, they're called the Amalekites. They come and they attack the Israelites at a place called Rephidim, which is, I have no idea where, but I don't know that it really matters a lot. Well, the day before the attack, Moses says to Joshua to choose out men that, he, well, that can go fight against Amalek. And he tells Joshua that on the next day, he... Aaron and her, whoever that is, will watch from the top of the hill the battle. And Moses says when he holds up his hand that Israel will prevail and that they'll be able to win. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel did prevail. But when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. And so Moses, as you can imagine, tries to hold his hands up. But if you've ever tried to hold your hands up for an extended period of time, like they get heavy. And that's just what it says. Moses' hands were heavy. So Aaron and her have him sit down on a rock. And then Aaron takes one arm and her takes the other arm. And they prop them up. So he holds up his hands and they win the battle. Sweet. Story number two. A little while later, Moses' father-in-law Jethro, the same one that ordained him to the priesthood and kind of started the ball rolling in this direction in some ways, he comes out with Moses' wife and his kids, Moses' kids, to to visit this traveling caravan. And Moses is super excited to see his wife and kids and, and Jethro. But after a quick celebration, it's back to life as normal, which for Moses means that he sits to judge the people. And there's so many people that want Moses' help that they would stand in line all day, straight up from sunrise to sunset, which honestly sounds like your average day at Disneyland. But it's so long. And when Jethro sees um, what's going on, he says to Moses, he says, what is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thou thyself alone, and all the people stand by thee from morning until even? And Moses says to his father-in-law, he's like, well, because people come to me so that I can go to God for them. And when they have a problem, they come to me and and I judge between them, or like I help them know what the the law of God is. And, And so that seems like a rational explanation for why he's doing what he's doing. But Jethro says to Moses, he says, The thing that thou doest is not good. Now, that might be hard for Moses to swallow. He's doing the best he can. He really has good intentions. He's trying to help people out. But but Jethro sees clearly. He says, thou wilt surely wear away. If you keep this up, you're going to burn out. And the people that are with you are going to burn out. Everything you're asking yourself to do is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Listen to my voice, I'll give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. See, you, you, do, you do still need to be the people's representative with God, and you can go to God with questions, but that doesn't mean you need to do this alone. Spread the burden. First, teach the people the ordinances and the laws. 
Teach them the way wherein they must walk and the work that they must do so that they can judge for themselves. Then select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint these men as officials over groups of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens in the people. And have these individuals serve as judges for the people at all times. But they can still bring the most difficult cases to you, but the most simple things they can decide for themselves. That will make your light, load lighter and because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all this people will go home satisfied. So, Moses, most of us, if somebody's that blunt with us, would be offended and be like, I'm doing the best I can. Why are you bossing me around? I'm going to do it my way. But, but to Moses' credit, even though he is the prophet right here, he hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. And he chose able men out of Israel, made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of 50, and rulers of 10. And they judged the people at all seasons. And the hard cases they still brought to Moses, but every small matter they judged for themselves. Okay, so... What's the point of taking precious time in the Bible to recount these stories? Well, for one, the second story at least, the system of judges is going to turn into the government system of Israel once they get to the promised land. And you'll see that government system in the book of Judges. And that government system forms the basis for King Mosiah to make Alma the chief judge in the Book of Mormon and that whole system of judges right there, lower judges and chief judges. But more than a lesson in civics, it's a lesson in deity. See, right off the bat, God wants you to understand that salvation is not coming through your efforts alone. And if you try to do it alone, you are going to burn out and you're going to fail. It's not going to work. Now, now, let's be clear here. There is nobody that believes more in personal development and the value of effort than Kristen and me. And just ask our kids. Developing competency is a big deal for us. But I do think that self-reliant is a bit of a dirty word when it comes to salvation. See, God doesn't want us to be self-reliant. He wants us to be God-reliant, Zion-reliant. Salvation doesn't happen on an individual level. It happens when we rely on God. It happens when we lean on others and let their strengths lift us up. So this idea of relying on others and relying on God is an idea we'll flesh out throughout today's lesson. And I think it's a super important one. Who are we really relying on? After this, Jethro goes home and Israel keeps walking until they come to the mountain, the burning bush tree of life mountain where God said they would come and worship and come into his presence. And so Moses went up to the mountain of God. And the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. He says, Tell them, Okay, guys, ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and you have seen how I bear you on eagle wings and brought you unto myself. In other words, he's saying, guys, I've done my part. Now, here's what I expect from you. I expect you to obey my voice and keep my covenant. Why? Well, 
If you listen to me, you'll become something different. I want to make you into a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. And not peculiar as weird, but peculiar as special, unique, valued. Heck, here's what he says. I want to make you into a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And this is getting good. God's like, I got something more in store for you, something big. God God is inviting them to become transformed. This is the end goal of every prophet in every epic, including our epic. God is inviting us to become like him, to become transformed from our, our variable weak state into something much more glorious. He wants us to become chosen representatives of his grace and his goodness to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham that his descendants would bless all the nations of the earth. So Moses comes down from the mountain and says, all right, God wants to transform you into something different, a kingdom of priests, his representatives to the world. He wants you to, to help him redeem and rescue everybody. You game? And the people answered together and said, all that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. So Moses returns up the top of the mountain and tells the Lord, hey, they're game. So God says, wonderful. Let's kick off the preparation uh, to come and be with me and to become transformed. And here's how the God wants them to, to prepare themselves to enter his presence and to become transformed through his power. He says, tell the people to sanctify themselves and let them wash their clothes and be ready because I'm coming on the third day. God is coming. Like what kind of a sweet message is that? It reminds me in the book of Mormon where Jesus appears at the temple and then people run all night to be like, Jesus is here. Get your stuff. Don't sleep. Come, come right now. It's awesome. God is coming. That's what they're saying. And so Moses went down from the mount and instructed the people and they washed their clothes and they got ready. And then on the third day, he actually comes. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of a trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. This, is, this part they kind of didn't un- expect. Sometimes we talk about God in such familiar terms and, and he invites us to address him as our father But sometimes we we address him so casually, we lose sight of who he is. Like this is a being of incredible power and glory. And when he appears, even a portion of his essence is so big, so grand, so glorious. It really makes the people shake and and to second guess whether or not they can go into his presence. God is bigger than any boundary, any limit you can think to put upon him. And so the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount. And Moses went up to learn how to be transformed himself and how to transform the people he leads into the holy nation, how to make these people a kingdom of priests. Side note, remember the initiatory ordinance where you're promised to become a priest, this is what is happening. A priest and a priestess, the same sort of pattern going on here. We talked about that in Doctrine and Covenants 84. If you want to go back and refresh, we talk about that concept. Anyways, 
And God spake these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So he's saying, I want to transform you, but the focus of our transformation is actually not on us, but on God being the ruler. If we're going to be transformed, we've got to understand that it's about integrating ourselves with this great being of power and love and mercy. It's really about worship. So with that idea of God and worship being the key to our transformation, God gives us the first and maybe most vital piece of instruction we have on our mortal adventure. He says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, I know you listen to that and you honestly don't even pay attention because you're like, I I don't worship other gods because we're like thinking Allah or Buddha or Thor or Zeus or something like that. And though he may be saying that in that context, it isn't all he's saying. See, a a God is simply what we worship and, and we worship something by giving our energy, sacrifice and adoration to that person or thing. And in return, we expect to, to feel happy, safe, value, and belonged. So it's not just other religions we're talking about here, but it's other ways of living, ways of um, living that take our adoration away from God and focus it elsewhere. And I think we do this all the time. I think most common for us in modern times, it has nothing to do with another religion but everything to do with us and where we put our energy and adoration. One, one form of worshiping other gods, I think the biggest form right now, is self-idolatry. Now that might sound a little bit weird, but it's when we make ourselves a god. Where, where we, and, and here's how I, I mean this. It means where we try to make everything right ourselves, where we try and fix everything. Like, You do this without even noticing. You work very, very hard, not just to perfect yourselves through learning and exercise and development, but also through constant planning, worrying, and preparing so that we can be ready for any possible outcome. We want to control things. We want to be the God in our own little sphere. And when something happens that we don't like, We take it as our commission to correct that thing. We go to the teacher who gave our child a B and we try and smooth things over for them. When it comes to friendships and emotional reactions in the world, we're careful not to bring up certain subjects around our parents because you know that that topic just sets them off. You, You seek to be everybody to everything at all times. You try and be good and you try not to offend people. You want everybody to like you and you want to feel at peace. And some of you are like just living like this to be kind and not bring up bad uh, things that will offend people and uh, trying to take care of other people. Like that's just a good Christian way to live. But it's not. Because Jesus and his redemptive grace is nowhere in that lifestyle. It's all about you and you correcting it. And ultimately, this is a very heavy and very stressful way way to live. 
If there is anything in this fallen world that doesn't meet your expectation of how it should be, it causes you discomfort. And the moment you feel discomfort, whether somebody says something mean or you don't like how uh, something in the government is going or you don't like this or that, the moment you feel uncomfortable, your brain in a fit of self-idolatry tells you to fix it. Fix it now. Do it, do it, do it, do it. Take action, any action, even if it means yelling at someone uh, who didn't do their job or criticizing the imperfection of your neighbor or breaking off a relationship or quitting your job. Like your brain is like, fix it. But let me tell you something, and I mean this with all sincerity. You're a trash God right now. now I'm not saying you won't be a glorious God one day because I believe you will be. But I would never worship you during this life. And you should never worship you. I'm telling you, stop. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, get me clear here. I don't mean that you shouldn't try. Of course you should try. But trying will worshiping God looks completely different from what we described just a minute ago. And and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. So trust me, but like, This idea of just giving our our worship or our energy, our sacrifice, our adoration in order to feel happy, safe, and valued and belonging is just life. We give our energy to things and practices in an attempt to feel good. It can be that we we focus on our body. This can be with a, a focus on pornography and sex to get gratification and dopamine. Uh, and it can be an atten- intense adoration of our own physical form. We, we go to extremes in diet and exercise so that we look a certain way and we'll feel good that way. It can be physical pleasure of alcohol, tobacco, or drugs. It can be a, a feeling of superiority we get when we realize how much better we are than all these other people. It's the jolt of pleasure we feel when other people know how far down they, they are. And the list goes on and on. Like probably the Holy Ghost is trying to let you know this is how you worship yourself sometimes. This is your form of self-idolatry. Maybe it's criticism of others and putting them down to raise yourself up. Maybe it's like we've said, using things or pleasures to shortcut happiness. Maybe it's trying to fix everything yourself. I don't know what it is, but we all have self-idolatry. And again, there's, there's nothing pro- uh, wrong with most of these things, the pleasures of food or, or sex or other things when it's in the proper context. The problem with this sort of worship is when you look to these things to make you feel good rather than trusting God. If you ground your identity in God first and worship Him and become integrated with Him, then the pleasures of mortality are just that, pleasures. They're whipped cream on the top too. Sorry about that. But they're not where you're looking for salvation. Sin is simply loving anything other than God. It's simply trying to take shortcuts to salvation, shortcuts to happiness. But thou shalt have no other gods before me. Even sometimes good things. Like sometimes you will worship your family. Um, you'll, you'll say that... Um, this, this is a good thing. I want to put all my energy into this. But has your family ever let you down? Have they ever made you angry? 
What if by some miracle they actually pulled off the feat that they were perfect and didn't let you down? Well, what happens when they die? Because everybody's going to die. If you put all your worship into that, you're going to be crushed. Flip that around, though. What if you put God first and you ground your identity in the fact that you are a beloved son or daughter of God? And you have infinite worth because of who you are and because of the price Jesus paid for you. Then what if your family is imperfect? And then you can work with them. You can forgive them. What if they die? Well, then God's going to resurrect them. What if you're imperfect? What if you say the wrong thing? Oh, you're still good. He's got you. You see, when you put God first, then you don't have to, to be so self-idolatrous and stressed, and it's not so heavy. This is religion. This is everything we are about in the church of Jesus Christ. It is about worshiping God through his son, period. That is it. And everything that God is going to say to Moses after this is simply God's elaboration of this central concept of worship. Okay? If you want to be happy, if you want to grow, if you want to develop, worship God. Give your life energy, your trust, and your faith to Him. All right? Okay, let, let's look at the elaboration here, okay? Because after he says, no other gods before me, he elaborates on this. And he says, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Now, this has to do with our tendency to look to things. And graven image just simply means something created by a mortal, right? Made with human hands. And so our tendency is to look to things, just like we, we look to people, as a, a shortcut to feeling good. We, we all have this tendency, We've all felt how gratifying it is to have your own thing, to get some new thing, shoes, a car, a phone, a TV, I don't know, a bike. This new thing is so fun. It gives you that shot of dopamine. I've watched kids get a new phone and sit through class polishing it like they're Gollum with the precious ring of power. But here's the trouble with trying to find safety in stuff. It doesn't work. I mean, it feels good for a minute, but then it's just a phone or sneakers or a truck. Stuff has no will. Stuff has no power of redemption, no power of salvation. It, it cannot save you. And so the more energy you put into shopping and buying more stuff, it just becomes like drugs. The more you'll need. It, it's, a, it's a cycle, not of safety, but eventually of dissatisfaction. And God wants to free you from this empty inclination. He's saying, put your energy first into me. And then all these other things are just things and you can have fun with them. By all means, wakeboard and mountain bike and have fun. But put it in its proper context. Don't look to that thing in order to help you to feel safe and redeemed and happy. Then after this, God counsels us. He says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, almost always we think of this commandment exclusively as cursing. And yes, don't use the name of deity as a term of disgust. That just shows a complete lack of awareness of who, who you are worshiping. True. But 
that sense is very incomplete of, of what God is getting at here. What he is really doing here is expanding on the idea of having no other gods before him. When we're baptized, we take upon ourselves the name of God. We become part of his covenant family. And with this, we have access to all of the inherent blessings, grace, and redemption that goes along with being gathered under his roof or or under his wings. But we make something vain when we make it so that it produces no result or becomes useless. So what God is saying here is that he has already sent his son to rescue you from the grasp of misery, from the talons of Satan, from the clutches of despair. Don't make Christ's atonement useless by refusing to live in the light and joy already available to you. We take the name of God in vain when we choose to wallow in the past sins, when we could sail in the grace of of his joy, of his beauty of his goodness. Jesus already died. You are already redeemed. Past tense. The atonement of Jesus Christ already happened. So if you are missing out on some of the joy that you can claim, stop it. Stop it right now. Do whatever you need to do to open yourself up to a greater degree to fill this spirit. It's available to you. I'm telling you, Be persistent and consistent here. And I'm telling you, the only thing missing is for us to believe that Jesus has redeemed us, to truly take that leap and trust it, and then act like you believe it. Don't you dare make God's plan and atonement of his son useless in your life. Don't you dare take God's name in vain. Following this passionate imploration for us. God gives us a command um, that can help us make integration with God natural and regular in our life. It's pretty simple. It's to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And remember, this is completely for our benefit. Six days shall thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Like every week, every seven days, we have this opportunity to reaffirm our our familial covenant connection with the living, conquering Son of God. It's a chance to rest and to renew and to build others. It's a chance for us to reintegrate ourselves with God, to gain that strength we need to go through day-to-day life. Now, following these broad instructions on how to worship God, uh, about how to live life and who we are to trust and where we are to find our happiness, God begins to get granular or, or really specific with how we can do this. Basically, the rest of this chapter in chapter 20 and the next several chapters after it, God gets really specific on how we can avoid the satanic trap of self idolatry and become instead God-reliant. And, and through becoming reliant on God, exercising faith and completely trusting Him, in that process, the natural result is that we're going to become eternal beings with eternal life. So 
as he gets more specific, he starts out with a simple command. He says, honor thy father and thy mother. Now, this is what it says, but it also hits at the root of self-idolatry. See, one of the components of the natural woman or the natural man is a desire not to be told what to do. But when we choose to honor our father and our mother, and especially our heavenly father and heavenly mother, we put their will before our will. And this becomes the foundation of true worship, trusting them. Next comes the command, thou shalt not kill. Again, pretty straightforward. Don't murder people. (laughs) Like that seems like a pretty basic standard. If you're going to follow God, you can't be stabbing people. And most of you are like, yep, I'm good. But again, this is getting at just our way of being in the world, our worship, what we, we give our attention to to solve our problems, how we solve our problems. Violence is an intrinsic part of the natural man. It's an intrinsic way of how, a part of how we get our way, how we, we enforce our will. And, and you may be thinking, okay, so violence is how I maybe tried to get my will when I was a kid, but I haven't punched anyone since second grade when Mikey tried to whitewash me, so I'm not that violent. But physical violence is only one form of violence might honestly be the most honest kind of violence. All of us use violence to get what we want all the time or to maintain our position of worth. We use violence in the words we say, in the way we talk to people, in the jokes we make. We use violence in our efforts to exclude somebody based on our preference. Our world is saturated with violence, especially in how we try to shame and manipulate those with whom we disagree into changing their behaviors so it makes us feel more uncomfortable, more comfortable, less uncomfortable. God's invitation here is to stop this self-idolatry. Stop seeking to solve life's problems through your violent words, actions, and manipulations. Live a different way of trust. Now, I'll leave it to you to consider what this replacement for violent words, actions, and manipulations looks like. But if you want to study some um, shortcuts, you might consider looking at Jesus' comprehensive instructions over in Matthew 5. Next, God commands, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now again, this one is straightforward and complex. This digs at the root again of our ingrained desires as flesh and bone, to be carnal, sensual, and devilish. God has designed our physical bodies to take enormous pleasure and satisfaction in sexual relationships. Correctly used, sex builds marriages and families that continue for eternity. It is a very good thing. However, with some subtle manipulations, Satan takes this gift and turns it into an idol. Our culture is sex-obsessed, television, music, social media. The worship of this false god with all its traditional accruements of sacrifice of time, money, and energy, with its own priests and priestesses and missionaries. Dude, you got to beware of this. Help your children beware of it. Worship on the altar uh, of sex can never satisfy it. Used in the proper context, amazing, the best, godlike. 
stripped of God's true power, it has no salvation. Then God goes on. He says, Thou shalt not steal. This commandment, I think, is closely related to what's commonly called the Tenth Commandment, that thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Again, both these commandments are rather straightforward, but let's take a look at the root here. The root is using things as a path to safety and self-satisfaction. We talked about this with no graven images. So here God is just fleshing this idea out a little bit. Uh, Just like sex, a, a new mountain bike is fantastic part of a balanced life focused on Christ. However, or whatever else you want to plug in there, right? But... Um, remove God from the context and things don't hold long-term satisfaction. Dude, there are multiple studies you can look at to prove this fact. The term is called hedonic adaptation. It simply means that your brain gets used to new things so that there's a diminished hit of dopamine the more you do it. That's why someone can win the lottery and within weeks return to their base level of happiness. Money can never act. Therefore, money can never save. Things can never fulfill, finally. The last commandment uh, is this, because we already did the tenth one. This is the ninth one. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Again, simple. Don't lie. But what is the root here? Why do we lie? It's because we want to appear a certain way. Basically, lying gives us the appearance of happiness, salvation, or innocence. It's a shortcut. And, And it's one of the most quintessential aspects of self-idolatry. It ignores our Father's invitation to actually be made clean and instead substitutes our personal efforts to make it appear like we are clean and good. Lying is like those gold rings you buy at a carnival. They look good for a minute but quickly fade and tarnish and turn your finger green. It's fake. So there's what we call the Ten Commandments. But even as we look at the Ten Commandments, let's not lose sight of the goal. We're not trying to live the Ten Commandments like a checklist. You do it that way and it turns right back into self-idolatry. You're saving yourself. We're not trying to go through the right procedures and forms. This is not a human resource exercise. God wants us to be transformed. He wants us to come into his presence He wants us to become the type of people who are comfortable living in his neighborhood and doing the type of things he does. He wants us to feel real joy. And so it's got to be, these things got to turn into worship and not a checklist, a way for us to connect to him, a way for us to be brought into his presence. He is right there saying this pattern. His presence is manifest for them. And the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And his message is, Moses says it. Moses repeats the message. Fear not, for God has come to prove you. The invitation is to come into a true connection, a true communion, true life with the Father. And if we do this, it says that the result is that the Father will come unto us. I will come unto thee and I will bless thee. It's a pattern of communion, of connection. God's saying, come try out life in me. 
instead of life alone. See what difference it will make. It can make all the difference in the world when you understand who you are and what you're meant to become and how commandments are meant to connect us to God, not as a way to save ourselves. I see this in a, a story that I, that I um, read about some converts in the church in Albania in the early 1990s. Albania had been for, for decades one of the most communist of communist countries. The, the government officials worked tirelessly to promote atheism and to eradicate faith. But then the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints entered into Albania in the early 1990s. And as they entered in, the missionaries met people and taught them about their true potential. And one day they held a meeting in some rented rooms and about a hundred people came. And there they sang the hymn, I am a child of God for the very first time in Albanian. Now after the meeting, the missionaries were cleaning up the, the room because it's rented and the, the, somebody else is going to use it during the week. And they came across a young woman crying in the back. Girls crying are like kryptonite to young elders. So they asked like, are you okay? Like, they're there, please be okay. I don't know what to do with crying girls here, right? And she replied, and this is crazy. Until today when we sang that beautiful music, I never knew that I was a child of God. That knowledge changed everything. I'm inviting you to really believe this. Come and become everything God wants you to become. Come and be transformed by giving your energy to God and watch what he does to every other aspect of your life. Now again, don't mishear me. I'm not saying you got to go to a monastery and only give your energy to God. I'm saying put God first and everything on your Tuesday can fall into place. You can be driving kids to soccer practice. You can be doing homework. You can be at your job. If God is first and you know your identity is grounded in him and all these other things you are doing are simply a way to try and connect with his flow, with his grace, with his power, man, it's a different way to live. It's amazing. Come unto me, please. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.